The Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Deep State, an Epic's original series. Truth is a matter of perspective in this electrifying conspiracy series. Deep State returns Sunday, April 28th, only on Epic's. Get the channel or get the app. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I wanted to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, my name's Jenna Johnson. I'm a This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, April 29th. Today, what congressional Democrats want to know from the Attorney General, President Trump's favorite TV host, and a ride-hailing app that's just for kids. This week on Capitol Hill, Attorney General William Barr is expected to testify before the House and Senate Judiciary Committees. He's the Attorney General of the United States. He has to answer to these committees in an oversight capacity, and they've called him to testify um, this week about the special counsel investigation. There was no evidence of the Trump campaign collusion with the Russian government's hacking. They want to hear from him about his handling of the Mueller report. Matt Zapatosky covers national security and the Justice Department for The Post, and he'll be watching the expected hearings with Barr on Wednesday and Thursday. They'll be tense. There'll be, you know, Democrats in particular who I think will be very aggressively questioning him on why did you think it was a good idea to have this press conference? How could you conclude that the president could not be charged with obstructing justice given what we've read in the Mueller report? The evidence developed by the special counsel is not sufficient to establish that the president committed an obstruction of justice offense. There is substantial- but as Matt's reported, the lead up to these hearings has gotten complicated. As we sit here today, it's a little bit up in the air, particularly with the House one. So how the hearings normally work is lawmakers kind of have rounds of questioning. They each get a couple minutes. They go through the whole committee. Then sometimes there's a second round. They get another minute or two. Democrats want to do this a little differently than normal, and they want to have committee lawyers be able to question Bill Barr. And that's very similar to what happened for Christine Blasey Ford during the hearings for then-Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh, where they brought in a lawyer to actually question her. Yeah, it's it's a lot like that. So in that hearing, the Senate brought in this lawyer from Arizona to do some questioning. It wasn't quite as focused as you might have wanted because you still have the issue of the other party going and, and it wasn't like both people used her. But that's the idea here that a lawyer would, a, a lawyer who works for the committee would ask questions. And is Attorney General Barr game to do the hearing this way? So far, no. So this is a sticking point, and he or his people have threatened that he will not show up if they insist on this format. Can he just not show up to a hearing? Well, sure. I mean, they could then subpoena him. And I and I should stop and say, I think it's very, very unlikely that he just no-shows. You know, this is kind of how this always works. There's a lot of hemming and hawing about how long he's going to be there, how many rounds of questioning there's going to be. The White House doesn't want to just kind of roll over on any requests, no matter how small. You know, you would look at something like this, which is just like a lawyer getting another 30 minutes of questioning at the end of Bill Barr. Uh, You know, and I think a lot of people would say, what's the harm in that? Christine Blasey Ford went through this. Bill Barr himself is a is a lawyer. He certainly is could handle that. He's the Attorney General of the United States. What's the problem with another lawyer questioning him? But the Justice Department and the administration, sort of more broadly, 
doesn't want to give an inch to Democrats. Like they want this to go as 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 it always has and as painlessly as possible. And if that means resisting Democrats kind of modest requests, then then so be it. And that is part of a larger kind of pattern of the administration resisting turning over documents um, and things like that. This is a, on a much sort of smaller scale. And I and I do think it'll be worked out, unlike some of these that will probably be resolved with subpoenas, but it's part of the same pattern. So let's go back to this central question of why Attorney General Barr is being called to testify in the first place. And you mm-hmm. mentioned some of the issues that Democrats have had with the way that he rolled out the Mueller report. What are the kinds of questions that you think we might see being asked during these hearings? Yeah. So I think one of the biggest ones is going to be how did you, Bill Barr, come to the conclusion that the president could not be charged with obstructing justice? And what insight can you give us on how Robert Mueller viewed that topic. We know from Robert Mueller's report, he lays out what a lot of legal analysts have told us is just a detailed and compelling obstruction case, but he doesn't sort of bring it to a close. He doesn't say, and we think the president should be charged. He sort of cites this Office of Legal Counsel opinion, kind of the brain of the Justice Department saying a president sitting president cannot be charged with a crime. But he goes even further than the Office of Legal Counsel has gone and said, I'm not even, I'm like not even going to make up my mind internally. I'm not saying I would charge him but for this opinion. I'm just not saying. So I think Bill Barr is going to get a lot of questions about how Mueller came to that decision to the extent Bill Barr knows. But then even more, how Bill Barr reading what Mueller wrote, came to his own conclusion that the president could not be charged with obstruction, that the evidence sort of just wasn't there. So I think that's going to be a big one. I think he's going to get a lot of questions on why he decided to hold this press conference before he released Robert Mueller's report. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about that press conference, because we saw a lot of Democrats being very critical of Barr right after. Yeah. On the day that Robert Mueller's report was to be released, Bill Barr, I think an hour and a half or so before, has a press conference where he kind of provides an overview of Mueller's findings. That's the bottom line. After nearly two years of investigation, thousands of subpoenas, hundreds of warrants and witness interviews, the special counsel confirmed. In a way that's very favorable to President Trump, he says five times in the course of that some iteration of no collusion, which is a phrase that the president really likes. But did not find that the Trump campaign or other Americans colluded in those efforts. He, you know, sort of states his reasons for uh, saying he couldn't be charged with obstruction. Yet, as he said from the beginning, there was, in fact, no collusion. Democrats are really unhappy about this because it really belies Mueller's entire report, this 400-page document, nearly 400-page document that comes out, paints a much different kind of story. Maybe nothing Bill Barr said is inaccurate. You know, you wouldn't be able to point and say, you lied about that. But Democrats are saying, well, you spun this unfairly. You kind of cherry-picked top-line findings and didn't do justice to the report, which really lays out what they view as a compelling obstruction case. And while it doesn't sort of prove a criminal conspiracy, it talks about all these kind of connections between Trump, Trump associates, and Russians. You know, their thought is Bill Barr was trying to get ahead of this, make sure everybody sees on TV, no collusion, no obstruction. Make sure the president sees on TV, no collusion, no obstruction. And then when the report comes out, everyone has kind of forgotten about that. Democrats are unhappy with the way that went down. And I think they're going to ask Bill Barr, why did you do that? It was proven very strongly, no collusion. So there's no collusion. They found no collusion. This is now getting ridiculous. They found no collusion. No collusion. No collusion. No collusion. 
Has Bill Barr defended himself at all against these accusations that he spun the report unfairly? After Mueller concluded his work, but before Mueller's report was released, Bill Barr sent a letter to The Hill saying, you know, Robert Mueller found no coordination between Trump and Russia. He did not make a decision on obstruction, and I came in, and I did make a decision, and I essentially determined no obstruction, or it wasn't a chargeable obstruction case. Then he goes to the Hill to testify, and Democrats say, why did you release just these top-line findings when we haven't seen Mueller's report? What's the deal? And he says, well... I did that because I knew that the public sort of wouldn't tolerate a weeks and weeks long delay in knowing at least the bottom line of what Mueller found. Like the appetite was just too insatiable. We couldn't say Mueller closed up shop. Let's just kind of chill for a couple months or a couple weeks while I release his report. And he also said, and I only chose to release these kind of top line findings because I think a summary risks being over-inclusive or under-inclusive. I think like it would spark so much commentary that maybe was premature. People need to see Mueller's report before they can sort of analyze it and comment on it. But if that's his defense, which it was then, how then do you have a press conference where you summarize Robert Mueller's report? So I think he's going to face a lot of questions about that. And we'll see how his defense this time kind of varies from what it was previously. We've seen leadership among House Democrats saying that they are not actively pursuing impeachment right now, though that is not necessarily off the table. Do you think that there are going to be things that come up during the bar hearings this week that could influence or even make or break whether or not impeachment is a thing that Democrats get more serious about? Look, my my view is that what he's released so far of the Mueller report tells a really compelling and comprehensive story. And while there's more information behind some of the redactions, I don't know that that's going to change the general narrative that's already kind of out there from the report. I feel like this hearing is going to be much more about Bill Barr and how Democrats view Bill Barr than it is going to be about Trump. You know, I mean, everything in some way is about Trump, but I can't imagine Bill Barr is going to say something that Democrats will say, well, wow, that makes the report even more damaging to Trump than we realized. And now we need to impeach. It doesn't feel to me like this would be the moment for that. But you never know. I mean, you never know what what could happen in this, what missteps he might make or what new information they could unearth with aggressive questioning. Matt Zapotosky covers national security and the Justice Department for The Post. Matt and our colleague Roz Halderman are the authors of a newly published book providing analysis on the Mueller report as well as the redacted document. It's available now as an ebook and in paperback. There's no doubt that it is not widely understood how much Lou Dobbs matters. Good evening, everybody. We're coming to you from the swamp, Washington, D.C. Those opposed to the Trump tariffs are simply, straightforwardly, anti-middle class, anti-working man and woman, anti-small business, and I say to you, anti-American. The majority of all those drugs crossing that border from Mexico to the United States. The radical Dems, the deep state. The entire border patrol of this country is standing helpless. It may be time to declare war outright against the deep state. 
exposed for their three-year-long conspiracy to attack, to subvert, and ultimately try to overthrow the presidency of Donald Trump. Lou Dobbs is the host of a program that runs every night at 7 p.m. on the Fox Business Network. And he's become very important in the national political dialogue because he has a super fan who happens to work at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue and occupy the Oval Office, and his name is Donald Trump. This is Manuel Roig-Franzia. He's a features writer for The Post, and lately he's been exploring President Trump's friendship with Fox Business host Lou Dobbs. He matters in the way that our country is being shaped. He matters to the president of the United States. And despite his ups and downs in his career, he's someone who has had this remarkable longevity in a profession that doesn't have a lot of examples of remarkable longevity. Here he is in his mid-70s. He's still a player. And that made him a compelling figure, along with this special relationship that he has with Donald Trump. Well, let's start by going back. How did Dobbs become who he is now? Lou Dobbs is one of the original stars of CNN when it launches in 1980. This is Moneyline with Lou Dobbs. He has this very high profile throughout all the early years of CNN, but he has friction from time to time with CNN executives. And he eventually leaves in 1999 over a big tussle that he had about whether Bill Clinton's speech after the Columbine shooting should be on air. He left CNN at that point for brief time, was running a website came back to CNN, once again was a big star, once again ran into trouble with executives who felt that he had gone too far on immigration and that he was emphasizing birtherism, the theory about Barack Obama not being eligible for president too much. So he leaves CNN again and he lands at Fox Business Network, where he has become a highly watched business anchor and someone who has great influence with a certain segment of our political spectrum. So how did Lou Dobbs and Donald Trump become friends? Well, Donald Trump notices Lou Dobbs before the two of them become friends. And he notices him in 2011. And it's all about this theory of birtherism, which Donald Trump has gotten very interested in, if you recall. And he is pushing at that time for Barack Obama to release materials. It becomes a whole big scandal of sorts. Now, a few years later, when Donald Trump starts running for president, well, the Lou Dobbs show is on the screens all the time, where? On Trump Force One. That was the name of the campaign plane that they were using. And aides start to notice that Donald Trump is calling Lou Dobbs in between campaign stops, and they are talking. And this pattern of talking, both on air, but also maybe more importantly, off air, continues throughout the campaign and spills right over into Donald Trump's presidency. So Trump is being 
influenced by Lou Dobbs and inspired by him, and in some cases it sounds like advised by him. If you look at the actions that Donald Trump has taken as president and you place them alongside things that Lou Dobbs is talking about on his show, you can see a clear pattern. Lou Dobbs is banging the drum for a national emergency to be declared on the border. The the way forward here is for him to declare a national emergency. I'm going to be signing a national emergency. Lou Dobbs is calling for Kirsten Nielsen, the secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, to be ousted. DHS Secretary Kirsten Nielsen is flailing. Kirsten Nielsen is ousted. And it was interesting because my colleague and co-author on the piece, Bob Costa, spoke directly with Donald Trump about this. And Donald Trump was happy to talk about Lou Dobbs and happy to tell us that he listens to Lou Dobbs and he puts stock in his opinion. He said that he was a person who really could get the message out. And that message is the Trump message. In a sense, I almost look at it as a mind meld between a guy who used to be a reality television star and a guy who currently is a television star. The two of them have this almost neural link. What do people in the White House or people close to President Trump say about the fact that he's getting a lot of his ideas and a lot of his direction from a TV personality. It has been uh, received inside the White House with a bit of surprise. One of the things that Bob learned was that when the Trump people got to the White House, there were television screens all over the West Wing, and they typically had four shows playing, Fox, MSNBC, CNN, and Bloomberg. Word came down that they should change that, that they should get rid of Bloomberg and put Fox Business. At first, the White House Communications Agency did not understand this because this was not a network that had the same sort of profile. Uh, But soon they got the message. And now Fox Business is one of those four on the screens. How often do... Trump and Lou Dobbs talk to each other? So we've spoken to people who know both men, and they have told us that at times they speak every single day. Every day? Every day. At other times, it's less often. But there's something else important here. Not only are Trump and Dobbs having a dialogue, But Trump is actually patching Lou Dobbs in to policy meetings. Let me tell you about one example here. I was digging through old clips of Lou Dobbs' show. And in March, this got very little attention at the time. The president very often when we're in there briefing him on the economy will pick up the phone and call somebody. The chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors was on Lou Dobbs's show, and he said on live television... We were just in there briefing him on these numbers earlier in the week, and he picked up the phone and called you. 
that the president had called Lou Dobbs during the meeting of the Council of Economic <laughs> Advisors, in which they were giving their forecast for the American economy. In some ways, this is really surprising. But in other ways, I think it's not that shocking because we do see the ways that the president has very close relationships with several media personalities. In particular, I'm thinking of Sean Hannity, also from Fox. But how is his relationship with Lou Dobbs different? So we've been told that this is less a relationship about being buddies and playing golf together and going to meals and all that sort of thing, and more an intellectual relationship that's all about like-mindedness on policy. Lou Dobbs and Donald Trump are totally in sync on immigration. They're in sync on trade. And the two of them really feed off of each other. What Lou Dobbs is saying one night on television gets into the White House because Donald Trump is watching. What Donald Trump is saying inside the White House and at his speeches gets into the studio of Fox Business because Lou Dobbs is watching Donald Trump. It's this circular relationship, and it's all about substance. It's all about being tough on the border. It's all about being tough on trade. It's all about a very muscular vision of America. Manuel Roig Franzia is a features writer for The Post. And now, one more thing about a ride-hailing service for kids as young as five years old. Coolest sub and coolest driver. Coolest sub, coolest driver. Jacqueline and Book Knight spends her time substitute teaching and driving around children through Hopskit Drive. That's Samantha Schmidt. She covers gender and family issues for The Post. And recently, she went on a ride-along with Jacqueline Book Knight, who goes by Miss B. She's a new driver for a company called Hopskip Drive. Thanks, Miss B. I give everybody a minute and they like it. The company was created by three working moms in Los Angeles who felt that parents needed an extra hand. Hopskip Drive is a rideshare service like Uber or Lyft that is focused on kids and allows parents to book rides a day in advance and get a sense of exactly who's going to be driving their kid and leave specific directions for what to do and where to take their child. And it has a number of safety features that Lyft and Uber and other rideshare services like them don't have. Drivers go through FBI-approved fingerprinting and global and national background checks. They also have to have a minimum of five years of caregiving experience. Hopskip Drive says that if there was anything more they could do to check the backgrounds of the drivers, they would do it. That basically they are requiring, and this is, I think, significant, they are requiring a certain number of years of caregiving experience. So they're presenting themselves as caregivers, not necessarily as drivers. So it's almost like, you know, nannies behind the wheel rather than Uber drivers. That helps reassure parents who are concerned about their child being with a random adult. But the price for a single ride starts at $20, and not everybody can afford that. It's clearly something that would only cater to middle-class or upper-class families, families who are working, who have jobs, who are capable of paying $20 for a ride for their child. Samantha says that 
even if families can afford hop, skip, drive, the fact that they need it in the first place is emblematic of a bigger issue in modern parenting. It's also, I think, showing how intensive parenting has become and how there are actually studies that have shown that parents today actually spend as much or more time with childcare, with spending time with their kids than they did in the past, even though they're busier than ever and more moms, for example, are working than they were in the past. So some things are falling through the cracks because they're, they're having to kind of strategize and stretch their time. Samantha Schmidt covers gender and family issues for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in today's episode by going to postreports.com and join in on the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag postreports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Deep State, an Epic's original series. Don't miss this electrifying conspiracy series when it returns Sunday, April 28th, only on Epic's. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.